and one way to say this, they're kind of a little spicy, but that is to build a marriage that maximizes the cost of divorce, right? Because if you're hedging in any way, if you're saying, well, um, let's not become one in those five areas and only become one in these three areas, you're actually increasing the chance that you're gonna get divorced and you're violating the reason for the covenant and the reason for marriage. Hey friends, welcome to the 1000 Houses podcast where we encourage and equip households to make disciples in and through the home. Every episode you'll hear interviews, teachings, and conversations around what it looks like to turn your home into a hub for mission, community, and discipleship. If you'd like to learn more about what entering into a season of coaching might look like for you and your household, visit 1kh.org for more info. Let's jump into today's episode. It's like Joe said, this is our second time. We did one last month. We're trying to pull off eight of these this year. So this one, we, this is so, so, so close to Valentine's Day. We wanted to do one that just is focused on our marriages. Um, and so these are all coming out of 1,000 houses. Our vision and our mission is to activate households to disciple the city. And so our desire, you guys, is that we would, trans, we would be transforming our families into households. And the marriage and the way that we relate to each other as spouses is so central, obviously, to the creation of a household. So what, what is the kind of marriage that is likely to create a household? A household is a, is a much more high-functioning unit that can do ministry, that can, that can handle economic activity, uh, that can really inspire and serve our families for generations. So that's what we're really aiming at, and that's why we started these housecraft evenings. Okay, so... Why romantic partnership? Because this is, this is the kind, this is what is unique about this kind of relationship that we are cultivating between our spouses that is going to create that household. But first, um, just introduce you guys to me and my wife. This is me and my wife, uh, April. Um, and fun fact, uh, we're probably the only couple that I know that has a picture of us before we knew each other, of just the two of us. So this is a kind of weird story. So April and I did not know each other yet. We were both students in Jerusalem. And while we were there, uh, we were uh, visiting a Trappist monastery. And uh, there was a, they were a wine, winemakers. <clears throat> and uh, I was with a group of friends. She was with a different group of friends. We were both tasting wine. And I just said, as I was drinking this wine, I'm like, this is, a, this is the first time I've ever tasted wine. Um, and she was just uh, with her group of friends over there. She tasted one for the first time. She said the same thing to her friends. Well, somebody overheard both of us and said, oh my gosh, this is your first time tasting wine? This is your first time tasting wine. You guys should have a picture. So we like awkwardly kind of got close to each other, <laughs> snapped a picture. We're like, okay, that was really weird. Um, and then of course we got married. So anyway, that's the, that is the beginning of our romantic partnership. <clears throat> All right. So one of the... the, the, the we need to have a thesis for what is, what is wrong with the family. We know that in the West, the family is in crisis. And what we believe is that the, at the bedrock of why families are struggling so much in our culture is that we're, we really have forgotten what a family is. And so <clears throat> the culture describes family as a nest. The Bible describes the family as a team. And so over the last hundred years, the, the whole idea of family has really shifted. And now that the best analogy that we often just reach to, to describe what a family's like is we call it a nest. It's a temporary place where we are getting nurtured and then we all launch off into our own lives 
and the whole thing resets every generation. That's a very recent idea of family. The Bible really describes family all the way from Genesis to Revelation as a team. When God first created the first family, he, he gave us a mission to do together, first with a husband and a wife, to form a partnership, to begin to, to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth, to, to subdue it, and to rule. And so that's a very different idea of family. The nest idea is not the same as a team. And so part of the, what you're going to hear us talk about when it comes to this romantic partnership is with this paradigm in mind, that we are really built to be a team, and that often the reason why we're struggling and why many of us are having a hard time forming a romantic partnership is because we've forgotten what family is. We think we're building a nest together instead of creating a team. So if a family is a team, then a marriage is starting a new team. And it's really a, like a startup. Every time a new husband and wife get married, they are forming this new entity. And it is like a startup. You are, you are founders of this new entity, and you're going to try to create this team. And uh, this startup culture that you want to create is permeated and fueled by romantic love. That's what really makes, obviously, this different than a tech startup or something else, some other kind of startup. There are other critical differences. So a startup fueled by love makes covenants, not contracts. So a covenant is a relational bond that we make between a husband and a wife for life. So we're making a covenant. And that's the, I believe, the most romantic part of any marriage is the decision to pledge the rest of your life to the other person when you know almost nothing about the future. That is an act of ultimate romantic love, and it should fuel that relationship. Uh, in, a, in a business or a regular startup, you, you create contracts, right, with partners, people that you're doing business with. Contracts always have lots of different ways you get in and out. That's not what a, a family is founded on. A family is founded on something far more uh, intense, uh, much deeper, the foundation of a covenant. Also, in a, in a startup fueled by love, you forgive, you don't fire each other, right? This is why we get a little bit of annoyed when in a business we start talking as if we're family because you don't really fire family, uh, but in a business context, you do. In a marriage and in a family team, we use and we understand the gospel gives us the resources to forgive one another and have a permanent, uh, healthy relationship over the long haul. And then uh, our uh, marriage startups are designed to multiply disciples instead of profits. So in a business startup, you're multiplying profit. In a family, you're multiplying disciples. Okay, so do you find the idea of a partnership romantic? And I think some people will hear this like, okay, that kind of like takes the romance out of the whole thing. Like what, if we're supposed to work together, partner with each other, and again, this is part of the reason why I think this is, has been, been difficult for us to uh, really understand is because we've really shifted that definition of family. But this is really the way that a partnership and romance works together. The partnership feeds the romance, the romance feeds the partnership. It's really a virtuous cycle because part of what happens is you get all excited about each other, you have these you know, moments where you're filled with romantic love and you're excited, and then there really is less and less purpose to your relationship. And as the years go by, there's nothing to say, well, why, why should we reignite this romance? And then what happens in a partnership, a romantic partnership, is you're constantly experiencing the goodness of, of the way you are giving to one another to build this family. And that fuels the desire for that romance, which then fuels the partnership, which then fuels the romance. And if you're experiencing this cycle, then this is the kind of relationship that can last 
you know, for a lifetime, for 50 plus years. If it's just romantic love, it's not, it's not surprising that that is so one-sided that over time it starts to flame out. And so we want to encourage you guys to really think about what is going to create this cycle in your relationship. So some examples of how the partnership feed the, feeds the romance, the romance feeds the partnership. And one example that I always give to husbands when I'm talking to them is when you see your wife give her body to bear your children. That's a huge act of romantic love that she is giving to your family. And I even, when I say your children, of course, I mean both of your children, but it's really important as, as husbands that we don't think about this as something that our wife is doing. This is, she is doing 99% of the work. If, if you want to get me triggered, I, I'm, I'm a very like a kind of a mellow person, generally speaking. But there's probably one thing that will trigger me faster than almost anything else. And that is when I hear a husband make fun in any way of what happened to his, his wife's body when she did this. I'm like, dude, she did 99% of the work to bury the children in your family. You need to honor her and love her for that sacrifice. That's an enormous decision and, and pro process that she underwent. So this is a huge example. And I think we need to see this as a part of romantic love. A lot of people that don't believe in romantic partnership, they don't, they don't see this as romantic uh, because they don't see their marriage that way. Another example is to couples. When a child's biological father and mother show love to one another, their children feel like they are being loved. I didn't know this. I just, I read, there's a study that actually uh, Katie Faust, um, she released. And what they said is that when, <clears throat> and, and one of the reasons what the, that she was describing this is that she was describing one of the reasons to not get divorced and to go down uh, the, the path of having step uh, parents for your children. She said one of the things that oftentimes couples don't know is that when the, the biological mother and father of a child are showing love to each other, they, they experience it as if they're being loved themselves. And so th this is really important for us to preserve. She's not talking about adoptions in this case. She's talking specifically just about in that relationship between uh, the, the child's father and mother. And so <clears throat> it's really important that we, we fuel that partnership, that we're demonstrating that love. But it, just because we're prioritizing each other doesn't mean our children aren't feeling love. They are feeling love. The more we are good at loving each other, the more love they're going to feel from us. And then an uh, example to wives, when you see your husband sacrificing his time to win your kid's heart. So I, I just... Uh, I kind of geeked out this season on uh, Deion Sanders, who was uh, coaching the uh, University of Colorado, and he had two of his sons play on the team. And what I loved about it was just the, the story of this father who, who designed his career and his two sons who were completely designing their career around uh, their family. And I'm like, that is awesome. And I think often when our wives see us do that, making that a priority and really leaning into the family team, uh, they're, they're going to experience that as love uh, that we're having towards them. So how do you move from thinking about marriage as only a romantic relationship to a romantic partnership? And there are really three things I wanted to throw out here tonight. So if you understand the biblical reason for gender, sex, and old age, I think you get a lot more insight into how to develop this romantic partnership. And I'm going to invite my partner up here, April. Okay, so I want us to kind of walk through how this works, uh, just kind of talk through these three points. And so first of all, gender. Um, so this is a big topic today. Um, and how, how, does, how does gender help us really understand uh, the nature of our partnership? 
Okay, so the reason for gender is given in the first chapter of Genesis. Uh, we're told that the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So he makes man and woman in Genesis 1, and then Genesis 2, we're given the details of how he does that. Um, and what's really confusing often about this phrase is uh, this, this helper fit for him. What exactly does that mean? And in, uh, in Hebrew, which April loves to geek out on, and so we've, we both have like tried to study and try to understand this word. The word fit, a helper fit for him, is a very weird word. Um, it, it's the word for opposed to him. And so in some way, uh, God has designed a relationship between a husband and a wife uh, to be opposed to one another in a way that they are allies in building the same team. And so the more you see what you're building as a team, the more that opposition doesn't feel like opposition, it, it feels like something you're building together. But, but the fact that, that, that there are two very different perspectives, two very different ways of, of, of thinking about the family, this is what props the family up, like these kind of two uh, parts of a trust. So how, how have you seen this work, Adam? Yeah, what are your thoughts on that, April? <clears throat> Well, um, I used to think that um, if Jeremy and I had differences, that one of us was wrong and that it was probably him. <laughs> um, and so the whole process of becoming one, you know, it's kind of like a process. And so for me, a lot of it was figuring out that our differences were good and what does that mean and how can we work together um, to oppose each other. So like the picture is, you know, like roof trusses and they need each other to support each other without one of them, the other one, they don't have any purpose. And so um, I think part, a lot of our journey in marriage has been figuring out how to oppose each other in a way that's like um, productive. Awesome. All right, so that's the first one. The second one is the reason for sex. So we're told this also in Genesis. It says, when God created Eve, Adam breaks out into poetry. This is at last, is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so a big part of the process, and when we think about sex, it's, it is a demonstration of the whole process that we're undergoing in our marriage. Everything else is really a dance around that as the center, um, and it's representing how things are functioning in all the other parts of our lives. So sex is the journey towards oneness in our finances, in our futures, in our friendships. And so we've lost the understanding that, that, that sex itself is symbolizing oneness. When God said, this is the reason why I've given you this so that you could become one, this means that we are moving into this, uh, this, this journey of oneness in every single part of our lives. And this is why it's so important that we make a covenant first, because when you make a covenant and say, okay, I know that no matter what happens, for better or for worse, rich or poor, till death do us part, um, I'm going to be with you. That is the only context in which this level of oneness is appropriate that you will want to uh, come together in every single area of your lives. Um, and one way to say this, kind of a little spicy, but that is to build a marriage that maximizes the cost of divorce, right? Because if you're hedging in any way, if you're saying, well, um, let's not become one in those five areas and only become one in these three areas, you're actually increasing 
the chance that you're going to get divorced and you're violating the reason for the covenant and the reason for marriage, the reason why that sexual union is designed to be at the very center. They thought so. Well, I'll just tell you something funny. So Jeremy was telling the kids that we were going to do this event, and they're like, oh, what is it? And he's like, well, mom's going to get up and talk to people about sex. <laughs> and they're like, oh, what? And I was like, I am? So here, this is me talking to you all about sex. You should, you should do it if you're married. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Little disclaimer. Okay. The last one is the reason for old age. So... One of the things that's amazing about making a covenant and choosing to be with each other, even though we can't see the future, is that the goal is to eventually grow old together. Do you see that as a huge blessing? Are you excited to grow old with your husband or wife? And it's interesting the way that God, sometimes he interjects these statements about, about marriage in different parts of the scriptures. So in, in Malachi, right at the end of the Old Testament, God is very upset because divorce is becoming more popular in Israel. And God confronts the people of Israel and says, The Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then Solomon, of course, says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. When, it, when it's describing this in the Bible, when it uses this phrase, the wife of your youth, what it's describing is it's say, he's saying, look, you're older now. And what I need you to do is build the kind of marriage in your youth that you are using all of that youthful energy, all of that beauty, you know, those, that season in your life where, you know, our bodies are working and everything's awesome um, and, and much easier physically. And you're using that to, to create a certain kind of one, a certain kind of companionship so that it will go the distance and so that you can enjoy each other in old age. So a lot of times what we've done in our cultures, we've actually kind of reversed this whole idea. We think that the romance is the real point. And as we're getting older, people are trading their spouses in for younger um, men and women because they don't understand. The whole point of that was to form the kind of oneness companionship that will get us past that season. And so we rejoice in the wife or husband of our youth as opposed to see that as a negative thing. So old age is the ultimate test of the degree um, for our oneness. <clears throat> so, tips for building a romantic partnership. So, as we talked about, the gender tip for husbands, if you're going to build a partnership, is you need to have a realm for her to oppose you. Okay, so this is, an, uh, I don't know if these guys are married, hopefully not, I don't know what they're doing. Um, but what this is, is there's, this, is a, this is a ring or a realm for them to oppose each other. Now, don't do it like this, but um, we, we, we need to create a place. And one of the things we're going to walk you guys through in the next talk is how to create the kind of space in your marriage for you to have these hard conversations. You want to have a, a, a ring or an arena that makes sense of that, that time. Okay, a, a gender tip for wives. Um, it's not good for a man to be alone. Part of what it's describing there is a good companion. I just was, uh, there, a video just went viral a couple of days ago. And basically what the video was showing was a bunch of men and it was asking these men, who do you go to when you're depressed? Where do you, where do you go after a really hard day? And man after man after man was just saying, no one. I don't, who do you call? I don't call anyone. And this is not the way God designed um, men and women to live. He wants us to have a companion um, and he wants us to be actually comforted. I found this very difficult to figure out as a husband. 
Because I thought as a man, I was supposed to be the strong one, and that meant that I needed to be invulnerable, even and maybe especially with relation to my wife. And I was, I was uh, actually watching this older couple, and uh, they were in their late 70s. And they were describing what they did when, you know, he had a hard day. And he said, well, when I, when I have a hard day, I go to my wife and I say, I need some holding time. And all of us guys are like looking at each other like, what? Holding time? Is that, that's what, what is holding time? He's like, oh, well, what I do is I just lie down on a couch and I put my head in my wife's lap. And while she's scratching my head, I'll, I'll tell her about my day. And she just sort of soothes me. And I was like, that's really weird. Is that, is that it? So I, I came home from that, this, this conference. I'm like, April, have you ever heard of holding time? <laughs> I'll let you pick up the story from there. I'm like, oh, were you hold me? <laughs> that one? Um, so yeah, this was really bizarre when he first uh, told me about this idea. And so I was like, well, I mean, we can try it. There's the couch and <laughs> I'll sit down and... Uh, he laid down. So it was a very foreign feeling to do that. Um, and I was like, all right, I'll scratch your head. And he's loving it. And uh, I'm like, tell me about your day. And he just started telling me about all his troubles. And uh, it was actually very sweet. And now it's kind of like a regular thing. Like, oh, there's mom and dad again. They're having holding time <laughs> <laughs> on the couch in the middle of the house. And we didn't have to like plan a time. It just, you know, happened. And uh, it's, it's a sweet time now. I feel like um, the idea that uh, I can help Jeremy carry his burdens or even just like um, soothe him in any way is really helpful for me. Cause I feel like there's so much that he shoulders that I can't really, you know, kind of jump in on or have a part of on like the practical level. And so to be able to kind of emotionally um, connect with him in that way it has been really special. Awesome. And yes, this does go both ways, okay? But I think the reason why I'm emphasizing this for the guys is because I, I don't know about you guys, but I was trained not to need this. And so I, this was a revelation to me, um, and it has made my life way better. So, okay. Um, sex tips. All right. So, um, <laughs> you're like, where is this going? You guys, we do have yammers here. Yeah, this is all saying very PG, okay? Now, um, April and I were listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and <clears throat> this, uh, uh, what are you taking this picture for? <laughs> <laughs> so on this podcast, um, this, uh, this doctor was describing how the, the biggest problem he was, he was struggling, he was noticing was people were having their marriages, is that men think that their wives are wired like a man and women think that their husbands are wired like a woman. And he's like, they don't know how to talk to each other. He said, there, there are phrases that a woman can say to a man and she, he will think about her all day. He won't be able to stop himself. And there are phrases that a man can say to his wife and she will think about him all day. Like her hormones will force her to. He said, what's really weird about these phrases is it works even if they know you're doing it. And I was like, no, this is not, there's no way. So if I both listen to this and we're like, so do you guys want to hear what those phrases are? Well, we don't have to do it, but yeah, okay. Okay, so I'll let uh, you reveal this. Which one? Okay, this one. 
tonight is going to be amazing. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so you just say this to him, and he's going to think about you all day long. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. Okay. Now, so, it, yes, you do have to follow through with this. Okay, that's part of the deal. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll only work once. It'll never work again. So if you want this to work, lots of times. Okay, um, for husbands. Now, by the way, husbands, that doesn't work on your wives. <laughs> so this is what he's saying is a revelation. You're like, of course that works. I mean, you can't imagine what that does to my hormones. Yeah, 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 that's your man, okay? So, so, but there's something that does work for women, apparently. I wouldn't know, but I, I have it on good authority. This is the phrase. I choose you. There's something about that phrase that when a wife hears it and believes it, that you really mean it, uh, that that has a deep impact on her all the way down to her physiology. Okay, last one. Old age tips. Okay, so... Part of what we're trying to do is as we are getting older, we want to maximize our partnership every year. And so there's a constant question about how do we go deeper into this partnership? How do we do more together? You know, how do we get involved in things that maybe uh, one of us is a part of or the other? The greatest enemy uh, to longevity, I believe, is two words, creeping separateness. There's these subtle things. We start to develop subtly separate lives. And a lot of this happens because we often divide and conquer during certain seasons of our family. Like we have to, like, you know, if you're having lots of kids, there's so much divide and conquer going on that you have to really have a, a, a full assault on that and begin to reintegrate your lives more and more by getting involved in each other's um, partnerships. So, and this is uh, the last one. Old uh, tips as you're getting older, um, prioritize your husband over your children. Uh, yeah. So this is something I have really struggled with, and it's prioritizing my husband over my children. Um, <clears throat> because we have those years, um, you know, we have five kids in nine years, and so you have those years where it's like, hang on for dear life and keep everyone alive and um, all those things that the divide and conquer comes, and you kind of have to. But then you have to come to a point where you're still prioritizing your marriage above the kids' needs. And I, I don't know if it's harder on the women, for the women to do that than the husbands, but I do find it very difficult um, to not just hide behind what the kids need. Not hide, but this is so much easier to do in some ways, to just keep focusing on them than to like turn this way and focus on uh, that hard thing or overcome that pattern. Sometimes you get into like a cycle or a pattern in those years where you're doing like divide and conquer that you have to kind of break out of and remember like, oh, that's right. You're, you're the priority. Now it doesn't mean the kids aren't a priority all of a sudden, but it just means if things aren't going well here, then they're not going to go well eventually for the kids. And, um, you know, 25 years in is all I can really speak to, but uh, it, you need that to keep going, you know, when the kids are starting to, we've married off two of our kids now. And so we're dealing with the, like, looking at each other and being like, do I like you? Do I enjoy you? Do I want to keep partnering with you? Of course, but it's, it's been a lot of hard work along the way. That's right. So, yeah, there's something inevitable about believing that you're a nest. And that is that when the nest becomes empty, 
the purpose and partnership drains out of so many marriages. And that's why we're encouraging you guys to think about yourselves as a multi-generational team. When, when your kids are getting uh, older and they're getting married, your partnership should be going up levels, not suddenly crashing. And that's why this is so important to get, get right now as we're beginning to look at this. So this, this is a, um, remember the end game? This is a cartoon that my daughter, Sydney, who's serving the table, she, she drew for me. Um, and so if you, if you just think that these first couple of getting married and having kids is the end game, then you don't really understand um, what, what we're actually aiming at. We're aiming at the table. Part of the reason why we like to do these housecrafts like this, where you guys are around tables, is because we want you to have a taste of what this is gonna look like for your family. Wouldn't it be awesome to have a room like this when you're in your 80s of your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren sitting around tables and having these kinds of Well, friends, thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about A Thousand Houses or discover what a season of coaching might look like for you and your household, visit 1kh.org. We'll see you for the next episode.